From the Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Dodici. This is the first episode of Under the Bubble, a new show bringing you into conversation with the people of Princeton's campus. This week, I sit down with Dr. P. James Peebles, Albert Einstein Professor of Science Emeritus. A renowned astrophysicist and theoretical cosmologist, Dr. Peebles has spent the last half-century advancing our basic understanding of his field, perhaps more than anyone else helping it bloom from a small corner of physics with almost no peer-reviewed work to one of the most important topics of our time. Just two months ago, he was recognized for this lifelong work when the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences awarded him with the Nobel Prize in Physics. I got the chance to sit down with him in his office a few weeks ago. Dr. Peebles, thank you so much for being our first guest, and congratulations on the Nobel Prize. Thank you. Uh, So we'll talk about the award a bit further on, but first... I want to talk about you a bit. Um, so you grew up in Manitoba, and right. you studied as an undergrad there. But your first plan wasn't to go into physics, was it? My first plan was unplanned. As a high school student, I was, I guess the word might be, out to lunch. I didn't give much thought to my courses or to what I would do afterwards. I did know that I enjoy building things. So uh, I had the impression engineers built things, so I went into engineering. I remember still complaining to a friend, Dale Loveridge, that I was running out of interesting physics courses to take in engineering. He said, why don't you transfer to physics? That is what I guess you would now term a duh moment. It was wonderful. I owe so much to uh, the faculty in the Department of Physics they determined that I should go to Princeton for graduate study, and I went. So you said in an interview a few years ago uh, that you never really knew that an academic career was sort of an option, um, but then you found your way to Princeton, and obviously you've stayed here since. So what was that transition like? Uh, the transition came when I was an undergraduate in the Department of Physics at the University of Manitoba. I saw the faculty making a living teaching physics. And uh, I never looked away from that plan. Let me do the same. But then once you knew you wanted to do physics, you weren't always planning to study cosmology, were you? Oh, no. I came to Princeton with the thought that I would do theoretical elementary particle physics. To my intense great fortune, one of the faculty members here, Bob Dickey, had recently turned his attention to gravity physics. Bob recognized that the great advances in technology, particularly driven by the war, made possible to do old classical experiments in gravity a lot better and to do new experiments. That work was so fascinating that I quickly changed my mind about what I wanted to do. I fell into orbit around him, and uh, his leadership led me on the direction I've followed ever since. So your main field of study is sort of centered around the Big Bang Theory. But that's a term you disagree with, right? Yes, it's unfortunate. The term um, connotes an isolated explosion. That's totally wrong. Uh, The universe is nearly uniform. It has no center, no edge that we can observe, unlike a bang. And a bang also connotes an event. The theory follows the evolution of the universe from an hot, dense, early stage to the present. It follows evolution. A bang suggests a start. We don't have a theory of how the expansion started. 
So the term is wildly inappropriate, just uh, so firmly fixed in people's minds that um, I use it now, <laughs> always trying to caution people how misleading it is. So coming back down to earth a bit, you taught at Princeton for quite a long time. Yeah. Is there anything that you really miss about teaching? Certainly in a place like Princeton, the teacher learns as well as the students. Nothing uh, more sobers the mind than the prospect of going before a bunch of students and being asked a question that you forgot to think about. That teaching has benefited me a lot. Now, on to a bit of a more topical subject, the prize. So according to NobelPrize.org, the motivations for awarding were your theoretical discoveries in physical cosmology. So this seems to represent a lifetime of work. Um, but what to you has been your most meaningful discovery? Uh, you can imagine I've been asked that question. And uh, I dislike the thought of picking out a particular contribution I made. I've made so many. Well, we have a universe that's expanding. Yes. A particularly attractive universe expands at escape velocity. Mm -hmm. Kinetic and potential energy is just balancing. That universe is elegant because whenever we come on the scene, whether in the distant past, now, or in the future, we would say to see the same situation expansion at escape velocity. If expansion is not at escape velocity, then there's a very particular time when expansion breaks free and, and becomes then unaffected by gravity. A special time. As it happens, the evidence is we live just at that special time as the universe is breaking away from escape velocity. Hmm. Why should we flourish at that particular time? Well, there are lots of notions. It's a surprise. I didn't like the thought of that surprise, so for a time I had strongly defended the thought that we're at escape velocity. But then as measurements of mass improved during the late 70s, early 80s, I became aware that the evidence is the mass is a little too small for escape velocity. By that time, the community had become very convinced that we were expanding at escape velocity. It's the only elegant answer. We could go into lots of reasons for that, but in the end, it was a fad, a fashion, to think that this is the case. So firmly fixed that at the time, um, I used to enjoy going to conferences and pointing out that, look, the mass density seems to be too small for this elegant expansion at escape velocity. I remember one bright young physicist saying to me, you only do that to annoy. <laughs> I didn't, I did enjoy annoying, but of course I had a good reason I feel, and now, well, it's established. The expansion is slightly less than escape. It's, we have a remarkable coincidence that we flourish just as huh. breaking away from escape velocity. Another question that I'm sure you've heard a few times by now, but can you walk us through the morning that you found out you'd be winning the award? Uh, five o'clock, the phone rings. Um, now, I guess I should explain that for the past two years, the university pub public relations department had sent me an enigmatic notice. Uh, we are available to help you with publicity if needed. Interesting. What did that mean? <laughs> 
at, at, it, the fact that it showed up just as the Nobel Prizes were about to be announced <coughs> made me wonder. I asked them about that. <coughs> they explained that there are betting sites where you can put money on who will get the Nobel Prize in physics. Really? I, did, I didn't know that. Huh. You know the way these games work. The more money is placed on a particular individual, the shorter the odds, the smaller the playoff, payoff. So the university follows the odds of all of its faculty members. <laughs> and when one of them gets odds that start shrinking, they start preparing just in case. <laughs> and so, first, I wasn't totally surprised by the phone call. And second, I was impressed by the elaborate news conference and celebrations that the university laid on that very day. That day yeah. They had been preparing. Huh. So uh, to return to my experience, well, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, at five o'clock, a phone call is either a disaster or the Nobel Prize. Who else calls <laughs> at five o'clock? Not uh, many people. No. So I, I was slightly amused at the conversation that began. Are you Professor Philip James Edwin Peebles? <laughs> and I said, I am. And the person on the other side said, we have voted to award you the Nobel Prize in physics. Do you accept? <laughs> And I said yes, oh. and then the conversation grew more informal. Interesting. My wife, when she heard this, said, oh my goodness. You know, it's, it's changed our lives. I, 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 value a quiet, I value the quiet life we've been living in recent years. Yeah. Really wonderful. Uh, I get to come in here and write. I get to go home when I want. It's peaceful. Suddenly, I'm notorious. Oh, well, I'm sorry for adding to that, but... <laughs> So, you mentioned that it's been quiet, but what have you been working on since you retired? One thing just almost completed is uh, a combination of a history of science and uh, my, my memoirs of what I did, it intertwined. It, it works, I think. The title is Cosmology's Century. And that's more of a more of an academic book. It's an academic okay. book, but it has good parts in it. So I'm sure. look for it on the bookshelf um, in this late spring. So that has occupied a lot of my time the past two years. As it happened, uh, I suffered a kind of a perfect storm in that as the news of the Nobel Prize came in, I received the copy edited manuscript of the book. Really? That was a pile of pages about three inches high. <laughs> that I had to go through under time pressure because the press wants to move forward. Of course. So I had the Nobel Prize, all of that ruckus, and I had the <laughs> copyrighted manuscript. The result is that I have been today and will continue uh, writing my speech for the Nobel events. So when you, when you go to Stockholm for Nobel Week next month, uh, is there anything you're particularly excited about? Well, in fact, uh, in fact, what I'm most excited about is the fact that my sister, who's uh, five years my senior, will join us. Her daughter, Christine, our two remaining daughters, Leslie and Marion, and my wife, a party of six. Hmm. And I'm looking forward to visiting Stockholm with these people. And as you can imagine, my sister is over the top with excitement. Oh, of course. So you mentioned that you're writing a book about the past hundred years yes. of physics, but what do you think will win the Nobel Prize a hundred years from now? Oh boy, <laughs> well, let's say 10. Okay, all right, more reasonable. Um, in this uh, well-tested theory, we do have two puzzles, 
but out there in the open, we have the postulate of non-baryonic dark matter mm. and uh, the postulate of Einstein's cosmological constant. Yes. The cosmological constant got a new name, dark energy, but that didn't that doesn't signify anything. We still don't know what it is. Oh, we know what it might be in great abundance, but we don't know <laughs> what it is. There are tests underway to explore ways to detect it. Uh, any day now, we might hear a breathless announcement, detection of the dark matter, really? Nobel Prize. Oh, well, <laughs> sure, really, <laughs> or maybe not. We just don't know. But I am impressed by the great progress these people are making in sensitivity year after mm. year, better and better and better. It's a wonderful search, but of course with no guarantee of success. So last question, and possibly most importantly, um, I read somewhere that in high school you learned to skate and to square dance. Do you still keep up with those? <laughs> I skated, but I much preferred s skiing. Oh, okay. But... Uh, no, uh, my hobbies these days are walking. I watch a bit of television, the horror show of uh, politics. <laughs> we won't get into that. Um, we won't get into that. But I guess I just promised the last question, but um, do you have any, any phrases uh, of inspiration for students <coughs> at the school? This university proclaims two great goals, mm. the preservation and transmission of knowledge and the creation of knowledge. We do an excellent job of the first teaching. Mm. It's of manifest importance, and I think we do a good job. The other is creation of knowledge. And, of course, some of that is deeply important. You consider the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for lithium-ion reactions that have given us these scooters that are around <laughs> the, run around the campus. Yeah. That was curiosity-driven research that paid off big time. And certainly... That is one reason why the university supports it. Mm -hmm. there, my research over the almost 60 years I've been here has been curiosity-driven research that will have no, will not be monetized. Mm. We can be very sure of that. Yeah. So why did the university support it? Consider, have you ever looked at the eyes of a young baby and made eye contact? Not recently, no. <laughs> You should try it. It's haunting <laughs> because you, this baby doesn't have a language yet. It's staring at me with such intensity that it's got to be thinking, I believe, what is going on? That is to say, it's deeply curious. Many of us must lose our curiosity, the pressure of work, getting food on the table, whatever. You lose your curiosity. That's a shame. I think that my research has been driven by the imperative to discover where we are, what is going on. Mm. It is uh, an imperative that I've helped satisfy, and I think that is the ultimate deep justification for what people like me do. My advice to you and all students, try to maintain that curiosity. Dr. Peebles, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Under the Bubble, a new podcast from the Daily Princetonian. Be sure to tune in for new episodes every Friday. This episode was produced by Mark Dodici and Katie Heinzer under the 143rd Managing Board of the Daily Princetonian.